Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to everybody. Happy Father's Day to all of you that are watching online. I can't tell you it's really nice, I'm sure somebody else has probably mentioned this, to be able to see faces. You know, your whole life when you, when you preach, you, uh, you're taught to make eye contact with the audience. And then like overnight, they said, no, you can't do that anymore. Just look at that thing right in the back there. And uh, it was hard to do, to be honest with you at first, to get in the habit of just totally focusing back there. So hopefully this morning I won't get fixated back there and forget that you're here. So you know, one of the things that dads are known for is bad jokes, right? And uh, so this morning I'm going to kind of try to tell a joke and hopefully it'll get some laughs and I won't get a thumbs down. You know, sometimes I'll come home from church and the, my kids will be like, Dad, don't ever tell that joke again. That was awful. So, but I'm going to try to tell one this morning. I, I, ho I hope you'll like it. So a dollar bill and a hundred dollar bill got to be friends just after they were minted. And then obviously they were kind of shipped out their separate ways. And then years later, in the Federal Reserve Bank, on a conveyor belt where they retire currency, the dollar bill and the hundred dollar bill found themselves next to each other again. And so they just kind of started making small talk and finally the dollar bill asked the hundred dollar bill, so where have you been? And the hundred dollar bill was like, oh man, you wouldn't believe the life that I've lived. I have been everywhere. I have been in the most expensive restaurants. I have been in the most extravagant hotels. I've been in Atlantic City. I've been in Las Vegas. I've seen Broadway plays. I've been on a cruise in the Caribbean. I've been in the hands of the rich and the famous. I have lived a great life. And then he paused. He said, what about you? The dollar bill looks at him and he goes, well, you know how it is. Church to church to church. <laughs> Some of you will catch that in a minute. Then the $100 bill said, what's a church? <laughs> Relax. See, some of the... Facial muscles tightening up. We're not going to talk about money on Father's Day. Don't hardly ever talk about that anyway. But we're not going to talk about that. But what we are going to talk about, this kind of a little bit financially, financial direction, is prosperity. We're going to talk about prosperity this morning. How do you handle prosperity? There's a Scottish theologian by the name of Thomas Carlyle. And here's what he says. He said, adversity is sometimes hard upon a man. But for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. Now, what exactly is he saying there? Well, he's saying that, that most of us, that when, when tough times come, you, you kind of rise to the occasion. If you know what I'm talking about, it just kind of shows your character. But he says, what about a man when he prospers? And what he's saying is a lot of people will rise to the occasion when there's adversity, but not nearly as many when they have prosperity will they rise to the occasion. I know that sounds kind of funny, but here's what he's talking about. When things are going well for you, a lot of times you have less dependence on God, right? 
And people tend to get greedy when things are going well and they kind of get possessive and some people get conceited and condescending and sometimes people get this sense of entitlement that, that maybe they're better than other people because they've been prospering. And so it's like he's saying that maybe prosperity is a better test of our true character when things are going well than when things are going bad. And so we're going to look at Abraham this morning because we looked at him last week in this new summer series that we've started, Believing in God When Life Doesn't Work. We're, that's the series we're going to be doing this summer. Abraham's known as a man of faith. We looked at him last week and he kind of failed right off the bat, didn't he, as far as trusting in God? He lied about his wife being his, his sister and that almost cost her, her or cost him his marriage and, and who knows what it might have done to her. And he left Egypt when he shouldn't have because he wouldn't trust God to take care of him there. Or he went to Egypt, he didn't trust God to stay in Canaan. And so he kind of flunked last week. But we read at the end of last week that things were going really good for him because the Pharaoh, he's getting him out of there and he's giving him a whole bunch of like dowry because he thought he was going to marry Sarah. But when he didn't, he ended up, Abraham kept all that. So as we pick up the story in chapter 13, things are going very well for Abraham. He's doing well for himself. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 13. So Abraham went from Egypt to Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot with, went with him. Abraham had become very, don't you notice that word wealthy, because it's a key word, in livestock, in silver, and gold. He's doing great. Back then, livestock and land, that's how you measured a man's wealth. Of course, silver and gold was good too. And this word wealthy, it actually means heavy. So he is heavy with wealth. You know how we might say it today? Man, he was loaded. That guy is loaded. So Abraham is doing very well for himself. But as he prospers... What would that tell us about his character? How's he going to respond to this prosperity? I mean, everything seems to be going good. You'd think things would continue to go good, right? But a problem pops up. So in verse 5, I want us to look at this problem. Here's what it says in verse 5. Now Lot, we haven't really heard about Lot at this point. He just kind of pops up here. We'll talk more about him in a second. Who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So Lot's doing well too. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And then it continues on and it talks about, And quarreling arose between Abraham's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. Now, first of all, I think it's important that we understand that this problem that's going to come up wouldn't have happened if Abraham would have stayed put in Canaan. But by compromising and engaging in deceit, these problems pop up. So what's the problem? Well, the Bible tells us that the land couldn't support both of them plus these two tribes. There just wasn't enough water. There wasn't enough grass. There wasn't enough vegetation to support these herdsmen. And it's interesting that when these guys were just middle class herdsmen, everything was fine. 
But now that they're really prospering, and they're kind of upper class herdsmen, they've kind of climbed the ladder, so to speak, that these problems show up. And they both needed some breathing room. You know, because of the pandemic, as most of you are aware of, the, uh, the government kind of extended tax day. You know, usually your taxes are due on, on April 15th, but this year they've kind of changed that a little bit. And I actually think it's July 15th. But Renee and I just recently turned ours in. And uh, the reason for that is, we, if you don't know, we have five kids. And so we used to have lots and lots of deductions. Well, all those deductions have become adults, so we don't have all those deductions anymore. And instead of getting nice refunds, now we have to write a pretty sizable check off to the, to the IRS. And, and nobody really likes the drudgery of, of writing those checks, but of course we all appreciate the benefits of taxes that uh, we get in our country. But you know, one of the things that happens when you kind of fill out all those forms and schedules and write that check is this kind of a good time to, to kind of evaluate where you are financially? And uh, I'm always kind of reminded of, of, of Proverbs chapter 23, verse 5, this particular verse. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Could there be a Bible verse that was more true about money? I mean, doesn't it seem like that sometimes? The money comes in and it just kind of floats away, just kind of flies away. But I want you to notice something about this verse or about this text that we're looking at this morning. The problem is not that these guys don't have enough money. They have too much money. That's the issue. Too much money. Have you ever noticed how money sometimes affects people? Some of the most miserable people I know are people that have a lot of money or a lot of wealth, at least by worldly standards. And they're just miserable. They spend all their time trying to figure out how to protect it and protect their assets and take care of it, injure it and worry about it, those types of things. Have you ever noticed a, a, a group of siblings who may get along great and then an inheritance pops up and all at once they're fighting over it all the time? Or how maybe one person in the family does really well and then the rest of the family kind of gets this sense of entitlement like you need to share that with us and how it can just destroy families. Well, up until this point in the story, as I mentioned to you earlier, we don't know a whole lot about Lot. Or we haven't talked a whole lot about Lot, I'll put it that way. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And Lot's father had died. And so Abraham just kind of put his arm around his nephew Lot, come live with me. And so he's just become a surrogate father to Abraham. And he's taking care of him. And because Abraham has done that, you noticed in verse five that I kind of pointed out, Lot has prospered too. He's got tents and livestock and has done very well for himself. He was benefiting from, from this relationship. But they had a problem. There's just not enough grass. There's just not enough water. So all the elements are kind of in place for a family conflict. I mean, like all you got to do is light the match and toss it in the, on the kindling, and this thing is going to blow up. So what happens? What's the solution? Well, Abraham's the senior partner in this outfit, right? I mean, he's the uncle. Lot's the nephew. I mean, kind of... 
like an Old West movie, Abraham could have walked in and, son, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. You're going to have to go. I mean, he could have done that, right? He's the senior partner. He could have said, look, Lot, young man, you got to go. And besides that, God gave this to me. It's my livestock. This is my land. You go find your own way. I mean, he could have done that. That would have been his right. But I want you to notice what Abraham does. Because it's like conflict resolution at its best. Look at verse 8. Verses 8 and 9. So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. So that's the first thing he does. He points out their relationship. He kind of confirms that relationship. We are close relatives. And then he goes on. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. And so what he does, he gives Lot the choice. Don't miss this. Do you see the act of faith that's required here by Abraham? The step of faith here? He is letting his nephew decide his future. Do you get that? This is a huge step of faith. Listen to this statement. Abraham was trusting God that no matter what he ended up with, God would take care of him. Can you do that? Believe that God, no matter what the circumstances are, that God will take care of you? That's what Abraham's doing. He's trusting God completely that that God is going to take care of him. Regardless of what happens, he believes God is taking care of him. Let me put this in a modern setting. Let's say that you and, we'll say a cousin, are in business together. So you're family. You're in this business together. You are the senior partner. You own 60% of the business. He owns 40%. You're doing really good. You're in the black. Revenue's rolling in. Sales are up. But one of the things that happens is with with this increased revenue and these increased sales, there's some logistical problems, billing problems, collection problems, and, 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 and it's starting to create stress and tension between you and your cousin. So finally, you know, and it starts affecting your families, and finally you just kind of come together and you say, you know what, we just need to split the company. And so you sit down and you look and, and you know that, that, There's more revenues in the eastern part of your sales area than in the western part. You're the senior partner. You own 60%. You have the right to decide which of the two territories you're going to take. You have the right to take the more prosperous eastern territory. But instead, you look at your, your cousin and you say, you make that decision. That's what Abraham's doing here. He is completely trusting God. He's letting his nephew make this decision for harmony. And he's trusting God to provide for him no matter what the outcome. Now I want you to contrast that with Lot's decision making process in verse 10. Lot looked around. 
So he looks around. And he saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zor was well watered. Now you realize in that part of the world that for centuries they've been fighting over water rights. They say, especially years ago before irrigation and stuff, that the water was more valuable than oil in Israel. They've been fighting over water forever. Lot looks around. There's a lot of water over there. That's what I want. Well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. And the two men parted company. So Lot shows his true character by picking the best territory. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think he should have done? Here's what I think. I think he should have went up and said to Abraham, Abraham, the reason I am where I am today is because of you. I owe it all to you. If you hadn't put your arm around me and took me in, I wouldn't be here. And I am just so thankful for what you've done for me. I'm going to take the lesser territory, the territory that doesn't have all that water, that's not as lush. Don't you think that would have been the thing to do? To be gracious and be humble and realize that this man is the reason that, that, you're at, that you are where you're at today? But he shows his true character. And he didn't say that. He chose greed over gratitude. He chose money over family. He chose to trust in himself and his own skill set rather than trusting in God. But let me point out something. I think it's kind of easy for us to get a little bit smug and judgmental at this point. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, probably, we're a lot more like Lot than we are Abraham. You know why I say that? Because we just live in a greedy culture. That's just the culture we live in. I can't remember the exact percentages. I probably should have looked it up. But they say that in the United States that less than... 10% of people in a year give anything to charities. So 90% of people never give anything in the United States to charitable causes. We're a greedy people. Most of you, some of you can probably remember the bumper sticker I think that used to kind of encapsulate it well. The one with the most toys wins. You used to see that bumper sticker a lot. And that's kind of our culture. You acquire, you acquire, you get, you get, get as much as you can. Do you know what the remedy is for greed? Generosity. Generosity. It's one of our mission statements, or one of our values here at Burning Bush. Our mission statement is connecting people to Jesus and each other. And then we have th three different values. Number one is be transformed. Allow God to transform your life. Number two, be engaged. Be engaged in missions. Be engaged in serving. Be engaged in, in small group. Be engaged in discipleship. And then the last one is generosity because it's so biblical. God doesn't give us resources for ourselves so that we can just use them on ourselves. He allows us to manage resources so that we can disperse them and give them to other people and bless other people. Generosity goes against our nature. 
Generosity forces us out of our comfort zones. Generosity prompts us to see the need of others. Generosity forces us to, to, to depend on God's provisions. Now don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with saving for a rainy day. You ought to do that. You ought to have a financial plan. You ought to have some idea of what you're going to be doing for retirement. You need to do those things. But generous giving will balance out our desire for acquisition. There's an author by the name of Richard Foster. Some of you may have heard or read the book, Spiritual Disciplines. It's what he's best known for. But he also has a book called Money, Sex, and Power. And he makes this comment about money. I love what he says. Without question, money has taken on a sacred character in our world. And it would do us good, I love what he says here, to defame it, defile it, to trample it under our feet, to step on it, to yell at it, to laugh at it, list it way down on the scale of values, certainly far below friendship and cheerful surroundings, and engage in the most profane act of all, give it away. That is great advice. Coming back to the text. Did you notice the little parenthetical phrase in verse 10? It's this phrase right here. Because if you're reading it, you'll probably just skip right over that and might not think much about it. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You say, well, why did the author put that in there? Because it just seems like a kind of throwaway phrase, doesn't it? Like you just kind of throw it in there. Toss it in there. Here's why. The folks that would be reading this later would know that after Sodom and Gomorrah, that land basically was desolate. Before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, this was this lush, beautiful valley. Lots of vegetation, a great piece of land. Now it's called the Jordan Rift Valley. The Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea there, 400 feet below sea level, the lowest point on earth below sea level. It's dry, it's arid, it's desert, it's terrible land. You can't grow anything on it unless it's irrigated. And so that phrase is kind of a foreshadowing, so to speak, a foreboding of what's going to come for Lot. Let's look at the next two verses. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pinched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and we're sinning greatly against the Lord. The point is kind of obvious here. Long term, Abraham's decision was the right decision. Lot, he had this greedy decision. He's just driven by dollar signs. He drove his flocks, but not just his flocks. He took his family into this valley of wickedness for wealth and money. And it's like he didn't even give it a second thought. He goes down into this, this, these twin cities of wickedness, this, this valley of wickedness, with no second thought other than the fact that it was well watered and I'm gonna get more money, I'm gonna be wealthier. In verses 14 and following, we see God say something to Abraham about this. And he kind of makes and reinforces a promise to him. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had left, Look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you will see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. 
And then he goes on, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if any would count against if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So what God is doing, he's, he's, he's reassuring Abraham. He's going back over the promises that he gave him in chapter 12. He was letting him know that you made the right decision, that I'm with you, I'm going to take care of you. If you get to verse 18, it tells us that there, there was these great big trees there. And, and scholars tell us this was the land of Hebron. And it was known for its lush vegetation, for its fruits and its pomegranates and its apples and its nuts and its vegetables. It was just this great land. And so Abraham had made the right choice and God wanted to reinforce that. And here's how I want to kind of close out this morning. When you look at Abraham and you look at Lot, they're like two opposite paradigms on decision making. It's like they've come at it from two different perspectives. Lot made his decisions on what was best for Lot. His eyes were all about money. His, lot, his eyes were just about what's in it for me. That, that was what motivated his decisions. It was like a no-brainer. I'm going to where the water is so I can have more. Abraham was different. Abraham made his decision based on what he thought God was wanting him to do. And his thinking and his planning had God in mind. Lot didn't. Lot didn't have God in mind at all. So what were the processes in Abraham's decisions? And that's kind of how I want to wrap up this morning. Just some really practical things about making life-changing decisions. You know, I know this hasn't been kind of a, a typical Father's Day sermon but I'm fixing to go in dad mode, okay? Just, just so you know, I'm going in dad mode as we kind of wrap up and, and we kind of talk about decision making. Here's the first thing we, look, we see here. First of all, when making a decision, always look beyond the immediate positive benefits to the long-term factors of a decision. You know, when you look at a decision, most of the time you can see the positives really quick. I mean, they're just like really obvious most of the time, the, the, the good parts of a decision, especially if it's kind of something you're kind of leaning into anyway. It's just easy to, to kind of support it. Well, this is the, the, the positive things. And most of us living in our culture that, that we live in today, you know, we want instant gratification, right? We want, you know, we want it now. I mean, you don't want to wait on anything, I mean, some of you in this room remember like when you used to want to get on the internet and, you know, you would just hit a button, a couple buttons or whatever, and then there would be this, and I mean, like you could go eat supper and then come back and see if it was on yet. I mean, that's how long it would take. And now, man, if it doesn't pop up like, you know, as fast as you can snap, you're, oh, what's wrong with the internet in this house? It's so slow. And we want it instantly. Most of us. We, we carry around internet on our phone. You want to know when somebody's birthday is, how old they are, whatever it is. You just pull out your phone. You want to have something, anything in the world, basically. You could order it this morning before you leave church. It'll be on your doorstep tomorrow. We want it. We want it now. And so that makes it where we're, we, we see the positives really quick. But we need to slow down a little bit. I'm talking about life-changing decisions here. I'm not talking about whether you buy Colgate or Crest. We're not talking about that. 
But the big stuff, the, the big decisions, instead of asking, you know, what's in it for me or how happy will she make me or how happy will he make me or what benefit will I get from this or how many dollars can I get? We need to think a little bit about the long-term consequences. What are the drawbacks of this decision? Because I think we can overlook that really fast and talk ourselves out of it. What are the long-term you know, consequences? What will happen if I wait? What does God want me to do? That should be the first question. A lot of times I don't think it's first, second, third, or fourth. Secondly, don't underestimate the impact of negative consequences. You know, like I said a while ago, I think we all see the positives really quick and we can really minimize the negatives when we do think about them. I think if most of us were honest and we look back at some of the decisions we've made in, in maybe in the last couple years, we'll think, you know, there were a lot more negatives to that decision than I thought there was going to be. I didn't realize those negative impacts because I didn't think it through enough. Lot just thought about the lush green valleys. He didn't give any thought at all to what it was going to do to his family living in this wickedness. Just, just totally blew that off. Just counted his money. And that was it. Thirdly, do not think only about pleasing yourself. You know, sometimes I think we'd all agree the decisions that we've made in our lives where we just really only thought about ourselves were probably some of the worst decisions we ever made if we're honest with ourselves, And if you have a family, you're married, you have kids, you definitely need to be given a lot of attention to, to those types of decisions, how it affects other people. Paul's words over in Philippians, don't look out, for your own, don't look out only for your own interest. That's, that's true in all of life, but it's especially true in decision making. And then fourthly, if your decision is likely to compromise your walk with God, it's a bad decision, regardless of the apparent positives, period. Period. Told you I'm going in dad mode. Period. If the decision you're going to make moves you away from God, it's wrong. If it moves you away from God, it is wrong. There's more to life than making money, advancing your career, going to a better school, finding a new romance. If it disconnects you with God, it's the wrong decision, period. No justifications, it's just the wrong decision. Seek God first. If it's gonna push you away, it's not God's will. I can say that without blinking authoritatively. Scripture says that. If it's going to disconnect you from God, it's wrong. Now I'll close with this thought. I think we're all familiar with GPSs. I'm sure just about everybody in this room has a GPS on their phone. And, you know, I have kids that live out west. I could punch in their addresses and you know, it's two or three hour, two or three days drive to get to them. And I could get an overview of the trip or I could just listen for the turns and it would tell me every interchange and every direction I need to go, left, right, or whatever. Or I could just pull up to every interchange and every stop sign and every traffic light and just guess 
which way is west and which way is north and which way is south. Right? I could do that. Might never get there, but I could do that. Well, I think that's sometimes how people live life. I don't mean this in a non-spiritual way. I hope it doesn't come across that way. But God's like a GPS. He's there. He'll give us direction. He'll give us guidance. Yeah, you may not always know every single turn and where it's going to lead you, but you can know that he's providing and he's caring and he's taking care of you and he wants the best for you. Or you can just wing it. Oh, I think I'll do this and I'll turn here and I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll go east, I'll go west. I don't know, I'll just try it out. That's how we live life sometimes. That's not the way. That's kind of how Lot lived life. And when you live life just winging it and not thinking about what God wants you to do at all, I can just about promise you, just like with Lot, and we're going to see that in coming weeks, things don't work out very well. Will you pray with me? I want to especially pray for our dads today. Father, we come to you this morning, and Father, we thank you so much for the, the story that we've been talking about today, Abraham and Lot, and uh, Father, we just thank you for the things that we can learn. Father, that you can help us, that, you, that, you, that you're ready to help us and that you guide us and that you'll guide us step by step. But we gotta trust in you. Sometimes that trust is hard and we wanna go to our instincts and our own skill sets. Father, help us to look to you. And Father, I thank you for the dads today. I thank you for so many of the men in this church that I've gotten to know on a personal level. The men that I get to share life with in our men's groups. And Father, I appreciate them. But I know it's a tough time right now. We have some fathers in our church that have lost their jobs. And Father, they're wondering how they're going to provide for their families. And that's, that's a tough thing on a dad. And Father, I just pray that they can take faith in your promises that... No matter what happens, you said you would take care of us. You know about what they're going through. I also pray for this time of uncertainty in our country. And sometimes we're wondering and worrying as dads what this place is going to look like for our kids. But Father, we know that this doesn't surprise you. And Father, I pray that we're faithful and we make a difference and live for you in, in the areas and places that you've entrusted us. I pray for dads who've taken on extra responsibilities during this pandemic, schooling and other things that are stressful and stress relief things that have been taken away that uh, are not available. I just pray for the dads. Pray that you give us wisdom. Pray that you give us guidance. Help us with discipline issues and raising children and help us to love our wives like we should. Father, we pray all these things in your name.